Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. I'm tired, you guys. How are you all doing? I'm tired, but I'm optimistic. I'll say that. I'm recording this Wednesday night. You're going to hear it starting Thursday morning. So I obviously can't predict the future, but I'm feeling pretty good. Got to be honest. As of this moment, we are six electoral votes, or I should say Joe Biden is six electoral votes from being our next president. And this election day was just so strange in every way. I've talked about my own voting before on the show. I voted absentee, filled out the absentee ballot, and actually dropped it off in person and then tracked it through the state of Massachusetts to make sure it had been received and documented and all of that. So I felt good. But with this crazy surge of mail-in voting, you know, the totals were changing all night and, you know, into today and probably throughout the week. But uh, I ended up going to bed relatively early on election night, went to bed around 11. You know, stuff was uncertain then. And it just felt like we can't control this. We don't know where it's going. I can stay up another three hours and not know much more, or I can get a decent night's sleep and catch up in the morning, which is what I did. And then, you know, Wednesday has been just a day of pretty good news all around, seeing Wisconsin turn blue, seeing Michigan turn blue. Look like Ohio, which is my home state, might go blue for a while on Tuesday night. Looks like that's still red, so, you know, that's disappointing. It's a nice feeling not to really have to worry about Donald Trump anymore. I got to be honest. Like, I didn't know what it was going to feel like. And we're not out of the woods yet. We got another, you know, two months or so until the inauguration. But just seeing him, you know, giving speeches and tweeting and it feels good to not pay attention to that. It's been five years (laughs) that this guy has taken all of our attention. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling relieved. I'm feeling happy, and I hope you all are, too. Today's show, my guest is Marissa Porges. Marissa has an amazing story, and I got to say, too, this show is a great compliment to Monday's show with Michael Ian Black. So if you haven't heard that, it doesn't matter which order you listen to, but uh, Michael's show uh, was all about talking about the, the changing definition of masculinity in 2020 and how we help guide our young boys through that territory. And Marissa is an author. She has a book as well, which sort of looks at the flip side of that. Her book is What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. And, you know, it's a really interesting book for me because I have a young daughter, and you may have heard on other shows too, I'm her homeschool teacher this year. So a lot of these issues of healthy development of her voice, of her dreams, just sort of all of that, her career path. Even as a second grader, I can feel some of those discussions starting to happen. And I want to make sure I'm guiding her and giving her great advice. And Marissa's book not only has really practical hands-on advice for parents in sort of navigating raising a young girl, but she also shares a lot of stories from her own life. Currently, she leads the Baldwin School outside of Philadelphia, and we're going to talk all about that because that piece was really fascinating to me, too, of just what's it like to head a school these days during a pandemic. So her school goes from pre-K all the way up to 12th grade, and we talk about some of the adjustments that have had to have been made 
because of the school year and coronavirus. But sort of in her prior life, Marissa was a fighter pilot for the U.S. Navy, flying fighter jets off of aircraft carriers, which is just really cool and badass. And, you know, she was one of the few females uh, doing that work, which is pretty awesome. Then after the Navy, she was a national security expert in the Obama White House. As part of that, she looked at uh, security and safety issues throughout the Middle East and Afghanistan, interviewing members of al-Qaeda, the Taliban, meeting with Syrian rebel fighters. It's It's crazy, difficult work. And she talks some about that in this interview, but also in her book. You know, that whole experience helped shape her into the woman that she is, and it helps her guide young girls and the parents of young girls. So just an amazingly accomplished, awesome woman. Uh, I had a great time talking to Marissa. Again, the book is What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. And I got a lot out of it. I hope you guys will check it out. And if you haven't heard it yet, listen to today's show with Marissa, and then go back and listen to Monday's show with Michael Ian Black. I think in both cases, there's great advice for our children, but there's also great advice just for all of us as we're thinking about being better people in this world too. So I hope there's something that you can take away from both of these, even if you don't have kids or aren't a parent or your kids are all grown. Here it is, my interview with Marissa Porges. Uh, so I want to start by just asking sort of a general question. How has uh, this quarantine period been for you these last, you know, seven months or so? Uh, well, it has been a wild ride. Um, I lead a school, uh-huh. um, a school for girls in ages, in grades pre-kindergarten all the way through grade 12, we're oh, just wow. outside Philadelphia. So yeah. we're one of amongst the first places where uh, we got fully shut down. So I have been navigating, pivoting from fully in person to being shut down for stay at home. We were virtual all spring. We stood back up school. We've been reopened since the fall with massive protocols. I am at work every day with the girls and my teachers, and it is a crazy, crazy thing. I'm pleased to say we're being you know, able to offer our girls the school we think they need, but uh, I think we're all, you know, adapting in new ways to the realities that this is uh, certainly forced us to think differently about, you know, what each day looks like. But yes, it's been a wild ride. For sure. I I just wonder too, like that decision-making process of trying to figure out, like, you know, I feel like every school went through it sort of over the summer, you know, into the early fall Mm -hmm. of like, what should this school year look like? I'm just curious sort of what, what went into you know, how you, how you made your decision? Well, I'm fortunate that I, you know, we set up a massive task force uh, that has been working regularly uh, since the spring, evaluating everything from the latest medical research and input from, you know, experts in the area that we could get a hold of or who, whatever information we could, could, you know, rustle up. And then we took a close look at our mission. And the reality is that we understand what girls need at different ages really well. But the essential question was if we could find a way to provide in-person school. We knew it would be best for them. Even if you can't do all the things you normally would in a lab or art class because of social distancing and contactless requirements and, you know, all of that, having them together is so important and having Mm. us with them so that we can support them and, you know, socially, emotionally nurture them. And that moment of in-person learning is just different than online. So 
Um, we thought that if, if there was a way to do it safely, we would make our best effort at it. And I'm pleased to say that so far, so good. And everyone's been super safe and following protocols. And we will, you know, hope we can keep doing it as long as possible. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I want to get to the book in a minute. And sure. one of the themes in that is is adaptability. But it seems sort of especially relevant, you know, talking about the school year. I just wonder, like, you know, when you when you have that wide of an age range going from from pre-K all the way up to, you know, seniors, like how have the girls adapted differently to this time? H- have they all been able to to adapt well, I guess, to the change of, you know, social distancing and masking and things like that? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's been fantastic to see and sort of prove the research that shows children are really adaptable and flexible. And if you, you know, help them practice that, that sort of way of being and the way of thinking, they can rise to the occasion. And we've seen it here, right? There was concerns early on about, well, what it would be like if the, especially the youngest girls have to wear masks all day and stay six feet apart. And what is that going to be like? And, you know, we practice with them a few times the first few days of school and by the second week, it's the new routine. You know, largely the adults, we have to remind ourselves of how to adapt and be flexible. And I think that's in some ways the, the heavier lift, but it's been really rewarding to see how the girls have really leaned into it. And I also think that this is such an interesting training ground for them to just see how resilient they are, how flexible they can be, and how, you know, it's trying these things is good when, you know, you can try and fail and try again, right? Those first few days, we didn't get it right. But then by the second week, we were following the protocols and keeping everyone safe and doing the things we need to do. And it's a funny living example of that chapter in my book. I have to say that chapter was an add-on. The oh, very really? end, I, I actually delayed, you know, turning the manuscript and said I just needed a few more weeks because I had this other idea that I started seeing in the research about these new concepts of adaptability. And so literally, you know, a couple months before the pandemic, so this is pre-pandemic, of course, because the, the book that just, you know, well, it came out recently, the publishing cycle takes a while. Right. And lo and behold, a couple months later, we were all struck with adapting in such a, you know, a formidable way. It was kind of goes fortuitous and completely crazy. So. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that really stood out to me, that chapter of just like, oh, yeah, talk about the ultimate adaptability. Because as you say, you you don't specifically reference the pandemic. This was written before then. But like what a, you know, what a laboratory, I guess, to try to figure mm-hmm. out, you know, if, if we can adapt and how we adapt. I, I wonder, too, just, you know, we, my wife and I struggled with uh, with the schooling question for our daughter. Uh, she's a second grader this year, and we ultimately ended up deciding to homeschool her, which was not a path that we ever would have considered yeah. at any other time in our life, I think. And, you know, it, it just so happened that with my schedule, I was home and, you know, was able to teach her. But, you know, I think part of the challenge for us, uh, just trying to figure out, I guess, everybody's differing expectations and sort of comfort levels, I guess, with with different levels of safety that, you know, I, I would put us more on the, you know, extreme caution side that, you know, we're still, uh, you know, getting groceries delivered and, you know, not going into any stores and really haven't done a whole lot since March. But there are people at the other side of the spectrum that are, you know, going out to eat three or four times a week, you know, having vacations and like, and I don't want to invalidate or judge anybody's experience during this time. I think everybody has their own sort of comfort level. But, you know, when you have to bring together hundreds of families and try to, you know, set a policy for an entire school building, I can imagine it it just feels rife with conflict. How how did you sort of navigate that piece of it? 
And that has been, you know, that was a question from the get-go because so much of this is really unclear and, and even both because or both because the guidance is sometimes unclear or it's changing and because a lot of it is left up to personal choice. Right. Um, you know, we've done everything. We've had really open conversations with our families about what, you know, we, we need to keep our teachers safe, keep our uh, staff safe, make sure we're doing the best for the girls. You know, we're very strict on campus and we had all families and all the girls above like sixth grade. So, you know, just a little bit older than your daughter. You know, the girls also signed what we called a, a claws up compact. We're polar bears here at Baldwin. So um, <laughs> it was our the polar bear compact. And it was uh-huh. in agreement so that, you know, you're going to do your best to follow the health protocols and they're changing. So, you know, we realize that that still was a little TBD in the summertime, but, you know, we really want um, everyone to be able to be here. We are fortunate to be in a position where we can also offer, you know, people can zoom into class and things like that. So for those who are doing other things or feel like they've been exposed, then then they can, we've you know, been fortunate to see that families are like, I, I think, you know, we may have traveled or we visited family. We're going to stay home for 14 days and, and make sure everyone's okay. And, and some families do that on occasion um, for the greater good. So this is an interesting time, I think, as a community, um, both you know, at our school and more broadly, to see how we're doing things for one another through the lens of you know, public health crisis. And you know, again, I think because our girls are so eager to be back at school and together, people have been really leaning into it. It's been nice to see. Yeah, I, I think people really missed that social piece, you know, over the spring when mm-hmm. it, it felt like everything was remote, and you know, being able to just see people again <laughs> is a nice feeling. Yeah. Well, so I want to ask you, you know, sort of, I loved your book. It was it was really interesting to me. And, you know, it, it's interesting because this comes off of a conversation. I talked to Michael Ian Black uh, on Monday's show. He he just wrote a book called A Better Man, which is uh, the subtitle is A Mostly Serious Letter to My Son. And he sort of dove deep into issues around masculinity and sort of you know, the the redefinition of, of what it means to be a man these days and, you know, that that it's OK to be a sensitive man and, a, and an empathetic man and things like that. And, you know, I have I have a son as well. So that that was a really interesting book for me to read and then to go over to yours and look at it from the female perspective. And, you know, just sort of looking at some of the stats you have in there that women make up under a quarter of the seats in Congress, even though they're more than half the population. They lead five uh, percent of Fortune 500 companies. There's just sort of all these stats of where, you know, despite being more than half the population, women just still don't feel represented. And I wonder sort of with that in mind, what was it that drew you to this subject matter and made you want to write this book in the first place? You know, for me, it was really a personal poll, but also sort of the, the mass, macro poll of the data you just pointed out, right? The fact that we still look around and, you know, decades and decades, 50 plus years or 60 now, um, years after uh, so much of the feminist movement opened doors for women, and yet we still look around. And even when we see a woman on the ticket for the VP, um, we also see, to your point, you know, underrepresentation in Congress or you know, at the senior levels of um, Fortune 500 companies or in tech companies or in finance companies or in all these other places that our young girls want to go, right? Like ask your daughter where she wants to be. And if she's like a lot of her friends, 77% of kids today want to be entrepreneurs. And yet women have a harder time getting funding in that, that field still. And so, you know, I see that in the world around me, particularly because uh, I spent most of my career until I joined the school I now lead um, in male-dominated environments and traditionally male sectors, right? I, I flew jets for the Navy when I was only one of a handful of 
women on the aircraft carrier flying at the time, right? One of eight, eight of 200. Wow. Um, I did counterterrorism strategy for the U.S. government, you know, traveled in Yemen, Afghanistan, you know, doing research, being in rooms where I'd often be the only woman at the table. So for me, it was also the personal pull to change that and to make sure we could look earlier and think about like what lessons we can give today's girls um, that would you know, make sure they can break all the barriers, any barrier that might stand in their way when they're older. Um, and that's what drew me to the job I now um, in, leading an all-girls school, sort of a, a pivot. Uh, that's adaptability right there, right? A pivot right. Uh, in, in my own life. And so it really came from the combination of those two, a desire to sort of, if I can help the next generation, even with my stories and the lessons that uh, I've learned from research, I, you know, hope I can. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, just sort of thinking about those those structural issues that are in place and sort of the underrepresentation of women across many fields. And I just wonder, like, if, you know, there's not a lot of this in the book, but I guess sort of if you've looked into sort of the history or just, I guess, how we got to this point, like, as you say, there was such a, you know, second wave feminism in the 60s and 70s that really helped push us in a better direction. And I think if, if you ask most people, they would probably say, yeah, of course, women should have these jobs. But why is it that why is there still that lag? Well, I you know I think a lot of it is there's still systemic barriers to both entry and there's sort of social norms at play in terms of you know what happens when women are pursuing some of the the jobs we've been describing. Um, you know, and similarly, when you look at the gender wage gap, that there was a lot of progress made closing the gap, and then it stalled about a decade ago, and so it's still at you know eight women making around eighty one cents on the dollar for the same job that a man is doing. And, um, and you know, you've seen progress and then it gets to a point and it stalls out. And, you know, I, I can't speak to the research of the why. I do think there's a lot of systemic barriers to entry. I think there's a lot of sort of norms at play. Um, you know, my perspective on it personally, and again, because of the work I do here at the school, sort of leading and trying to shape the next generation of female leaders is, you know, there's skills that we can give our young girls and our young women that will prepare them for the reality they're likely to face, right? Um, Whether it's gender discrimination or just sort of the norms of the workplace, right? Right. And and sort of if we prepare people earlier, um, they'll be more, uh, you know, be better suited uh, no matter where they head next. And so that's sort of my slant on it. Right. Well, and and you talk one of the points, you know, you were just mentioning like uh, the wage gap and negotiation is a big piece of the book and sort of teaching girls from a young age how to negotiate and not just, you know, for salaries, but sort of across the board, you know, advocating for yourself and uh, and negotiating. But I wonder, like, I, I can think of my own scenarios of like having to negotiate for a salary. And it's just it's such an opaque, you know, thing that you don't you don't have any sense of like, how much should I be pe- being paid for this? What are other people making? Like, I feel like that's a piece of it, too, is just like. How do you even know that you're at 80% if it's just this kind of black box of, of salary negotiation sometimes? 100%, right? It's a black box. And yet, you know, research shows still men, by and large, navigate that black box a little more effectively than women. Uh-huh. When receiving job offer studies have shown men, about 50% of men ask for more money compared to only 12% of women. Right, that's like the opening negotiation, that salvo where you know you're supposed to ask for a little more because the opening offer is a little low. Yeah. Right, and so whether it's that, just training women to know to ask, or the fact that you know women have fewer mentors by and large, uh, statistically speaking, than men, and yet we know it's mentors who 
to make that opaque box a little more transparent. Mm. Share with, uh, this is the salary. Oh, push them a little further. Oh, ask, you know, the key to negotiating is maybe asking for something other than salary, but benefits, right? All these tricks of the trade, you know, so some of it is strategy, but some of it's just tactics. And, you know, I can remember the first time uh, I realized I was being paid less than my male peers at work, right? It was my first job after I left the Navy and I was, uh, you know, working myself to the bone in a job, my dream job in the Pentagon, right? Handling counterterrorism strategy and just feeling like I was really serving um, in a really great way. And so it hadn't occurred to me that I should be negotiating harder for my salary or sort of pushing for benefits. And a year in, you know, randomly someone from HR mentioned something that a benefit I literally had not been receiving and everyone else had. And then I dug into it further and I realized I was also underpaid by like a couple pay scales, even though I had more experience and a graduate degree and other things. Wow. And I just looked around and thought, wait a minute, like how did I not know to ask, right? right? That baseline question. And I think, you know, again, because research shows it's true and for men and women, such an important, you know, strategy to practice over time. It's just something that I think we should all have conversations earlier and earlier because, you know, you can start those asking for more at your first job, right? You may not get it and that's fine, but you then build a muscle memory to ask. And so it's just having these sorts of conversations with our girls that I think is incredibly important. Yeah. And I feel like that is a piece of it too, of just, uh, just the act of asking that like, you know, they can always say no, but I feel like, and even I encounter this myself of like, well, if I ask for, you know, $2,000 more, then they're going to say, you know what, get out of here. You're not the guy for the job. <laughs> and like you're in the chair for a reason, you know, like that you've gotten mm-hmm. this far in the interview process. Like the worst they can do is yeah. say, no, actually, this is our best offer. Or they might say, yeah, sure, $2,000, we can make that work, you know. Well, and it's not just about the salary negotiation, too, right? If we think about, you know, particularly in this time when we keep reading how um, the pandemic is disproportionately impacting women, particularly, you know, women who have children at home who may be working remotely and sort of the strain of that is actually driving more women to opt out of working, the workforce. Four times as many women opted out of the workforce in, in September alone than men about 800,000 compared to 200 plus thousand men. Um, And yeah, and you think, well, but is there something that we women should be asking for? You know, changes to our schedule, hope at help at home, you know, sort of new accommodations, maybe some help from our partners or our families. Right. And so the act of asking, I think can really be such an empowering skill tool, you know, all those things for our girls to start young. Uh, and so, the, you know, and I know I say that in parents who just, you know, the, the parents I, in my mind are thinking, oh my goodness, no, like, you know, they ask for everything already. Right. And yet, yeah. um, it's, but it's about encouraging in the right way, yeah. sort of like pointing in the right direction, honing that skill, I think. Yeah. It, it's interesting. This had come up with another guest that I talked to of just sort of, you know, this pandemic perhaps being a reset on, on some of these you know, benefits issues and, you know, time off or flex time or working from home, whatever it is, like, I think we're all sort of discovering that things that we thought were impossible, even six, eight months ago, actually can work. (laughs) And it's just, you know, Mm -hmm. it's being aware of that. And I guess, you know, I'm less in tune to it as a man, I think, of just sort of the pressures of motherhood or, you know, working around a family or whatever. But when you realize that, you know, we're all sort of in this boat now of people, at least for the last seven months, we've all been stuck at home and, and, you know, sort of had equal childcare responsibilities and we all managed to juggle it. And maybe that's something we should have going forward, too, of just, you know, figuring out a way that we can sort of 
make it all work and not have these sort of antiquated views, I guess, of, of what a workplace might look like. I certainly hope so. I mean, it's, again, it's it's weird to think of silver linings from all of this, especially right. when we're still in the thick of it. But, you know, I, I do hope that is a, a lesson learned, I suppose, when we eventually get to the other side. Yeah. And you were talking about sort of activities that you can do with your young girls to sort of get that practice so that once they're adults, they're more comfortable with a lot of these things. And I really like that about the book. that there, There's activities in each section, you know, and, and sort of ways, little ways, subtle ways, you know, around the dinner table to to sort of build those skills. I wonder, though, you know, as we talk about systemic problems and sort of, you know, just growing up in a system, it feels like some parents may not be equipped with the skills to even know how to begin some of these conversations. And I know you lay pieces of it out in the book, but I just wonder, like, for parents that a lot of these skills don't come naturally, whether it's negotiation or cooperation or adaptability, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, they're from a different era. They're raised a certain way. Now they're trying to raise girls for 2020. Like, what's your advice to parents trying to figure that piece of it out? Well, I think this is the reality of we, uh, you know, our, our kids don't have to make the same mistakes as we do and or, you know, we know they need different things, right? So this idea that um, this next generation of leaders of, you know, our girls today, they need different skills than I think we grew up needing, right? Um, adaptability being one, empathetic thinking is sort of, you know, another one, just front and center in terms of what um, is going to make them effective later on in any environment they go into. Um, this idea of being strong self-advocates. You know, and recognizing that is the first step. Um, and then not saying, well, just because I don't have it in my skill set, I, I don't think that should stop us from finding little ways to encourage it in our kids. Because mm-hmm. your point about small things making a big difference is really, really critical, right? It's not about, you know, making them the best negotiator ever, but it's about, you know, helping them realize they have to ask for things when they right. want them. It's not, you know, this idea that they have to be, um, you know, a fantastic entrepreneurial pitch maker. No. But, you know, the next time they ask for a dog or a game, a toy, a sleepover party, whatever it is, send them off and say, come back in 30 minutes and pitch it, right? They'll all go on Google and and before you know it, have a refined pitch, I guarantee, right? Because it's interesting to think like when you give them a little direction, kids these days really, the information is at their fingertips and they will come back and surprise you about how far they take it. I've seen it firsthand. They come up with things that I could never have done in their age and perhaps not even now. So I wouldn't let our own um, sort of concern for not having the skill set stop us as parents from trying to, you know, show that direction to uh, our kids and especially our daughters. Yeah. Well, I love, too, that you're fully okay, and you talk about this in the book, with still standing your ground as a parent that like you may have your decision made up, you know, your daughter decides she wants a puppy and and comes and pitches you this idea. Like just the act of asking is so important, even if the answer is still no, like you, you want to develop that skill, but like, I guess I wonder, can it be deflating? Is it, you know, is there a point where, you know, it's not worth it to make that presentation. You know, she puts in all this work and then says, oh, you know what, next time it's it's not worth it. Well, listen, I mean, we we don't want to set our kids up too often for those moments. But, you know, first of all, I do think the act itself is really empowering. The chance to, you know, make a formal presentation, to sort of do it in front of other people, to do it in a way that you can even say, oh, this is the way we do it at work. This is the way I have to do mm. it for my boss. And, yeah. and, you know, sort of you're then role modeling what the real world is like. It's, it's something empowering to kids. 
you know, I think the other thing to remember is, you know, no, we don't, we shouldn't be changing wholesale our, our parenting uh, preferences or priorities. But, you know, just like any creative negotiation, there's a, there may be a, some give me in there, right? You know, she doesn't get the dog, but maybe she gets a stuffed animal dog, mm. right? I know one yep. family, they didn't get the dog, but they ended up looking into a hedgehog instead, right? Like it's, you know, is there some other outcome that um, would be equally rewarding? Um, or even if it's just the grown-up conversation that ensues that said, yeah, you know, you did a really good job and I'm proud of you. This is why a dog isn't in the cards, right? I'm allergic. It's expensive. It's, you know, not, it's the pandemic and we can't manage it right now. Yeah. All those things are actually um, the moments when our kids, especially our girls, really practice the, you know, practice the, the things that will, they'll lean back on when they're adults and they love it. Right. And then, you know, I've seen it happen here. You know, the, I, I actually, the pitch deck idea came from two girls who came to pitch me an idea for selling cookies on campus last year. Yeah. And I knew they'd already gone to the head of their sort of section of their dean for their classes. They've already sort of run it up the system. And I was going to be the last person that said no, because they'd already heard no along the way for a number of reasons about allergies and, you know, sort of other, other sort of very, uh, adult reasons why it wouldn't work. Um, they still wanted to pitch it, and they came in and they did. And I, you know, explained to them the reasons why and sort of why it wouldn't work. But then I validated their effort. And you know what? They, you know, they didn't bat an eye and they just kept going. So I, I do think it's, um, and it was fun for them in the process. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder too, you brought up the, this issue that it feels like women in the workplace deal with a lot of sort of mansplaining or, you know, being interrupted or, you know, coming up with an idea and then a male colleague repeating the same idea back. And you actually cited these issues happening as early sometimes as middle or high school. And it's just interesting to me, I guess, because I like to think of this younger generation as a lot more enlightened, certainly than than I was, and you know, definitely more so than my parents were. But some of these issues still kind of persist in a way that it's almost unconscious. Like, how do you begin to sort of unravel that stuff and and learn those new behaviors of you know just being more respectful? I guess, like, where does it come from for for the boys and the girls, and and how do you get around it? Well, so I think so much of it is uh, systemic, ingrained, and then normalized socially as we grow up. Um, uh -huh. And, you know, and while we're trying to change the system, I think it's, you know, likewise important to find little ways that we as, you know, adults, as men and women sort of recognize, are we an interrupter or are we someone who needs to speak up more and how do we change that about our own sort of like, is there a little behavioral tricks we can do differently and then help our girls think of the same things because, you know, it happens at all levels, right? An interesting, you know, data point when we think it's just about those who've, you know, been, uh, you know, illuminated about these things, but then you realize that it's happening at the Supreme Court, right? right? They did a study of the Supreme Court and the female Supreme Court justices, so this is, you know, before RBG's passing, but Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan are interrupted, statistically speaking, vastly more than the male justices. 66% of all interruptions are just um, interruptions made against the three Supreme Court justices, the highest court in the land, and right. they are getting interrupted by men in the room. And you ask yourself, like, why? I think there's so many things that go into that. And so then my thought is, well, you know, is there something we could do tactically or strategically to help 
empower girls and women to speak up for ourselves, to advocate for ourselves. And I do think this is where helping our girls practice from an early age, the act of speaking up, um, giving them tools that make them feel personally comfortable speaking up. And that looks different for different kids, right? Sometimes, you know, we see our girls speaking up by raising their hand and, and sort of voicing their thoughts. Some of them prefer to do it in writing. Right now we see, interestingly enough, that via Zoom on video, it looks different. Some of the girls who speak up in class um, are less likely on video or remotely, but hmm. other girls who are more quiet sort of prefer that mode, right? But then you think, well, you know, can that be a tool that, you know, we all, when we know ourselves, use in the real world differently? Right. And then, you know, for the men listening and sort of those who work uh, with women or sort of, you know, recognizing what the, the dining room table looks like, um, you know, make sure your daughter's speaking up as often as your son. Make sure that, you know, when you're at a restaurant, she's ordering for the family, not just you or your son or the, you know, the men around the table. It sounds odd to say, right, because it seems a real simplistic way of doing it. But again, the act or the practice of using your voice and is something that, it sort of seeps into their psyche, and then later on in life, it is something that they're comfortable with, right? Yeah. And the, key, the great example I have from school is one of the most proud moments I had um, as a school leader, um, and it came out of something that was horrific in so many ways, but it really um, made me glad for how we empower our girls to advocate for themselves. And it was two of our students were at a nearby campus um, and were sexually harassed on their way um, you know, it was dusk. It wasn't even dark out yet. They were walking back to the parking lot and um, two employees of this campus, not our campus, but a neighboring um, one in the area. And, um, you know, started getting cat calls, comments on their body, you know, crying after them. And, and they were frightened, right? 16, 17 year old girls, they ran back to their car. One of their moms was waiting for them. And so first you say, okay, they protected themselves. That's great. So it's what happens next that I was so proud of, right? They got in the car and within an hour emailed the president of that school, um, explained exactly what happened, reported it, and then asked very pointedly, is there a sexual harassment training for your employees? We'd love to discuss your next steps. And within a day, they were sitting with the head of security and the head of HR um, and the president of this school to talk about it. Wow. And that's not something that happens, right? Only one in four harassment incidents uh, at college campus are reported because most women don't feel comfortable speaking up. I think it's something I would have had a hard time doing when I was their age for sure. Yeah. Um, and so then it begins asking, well, like, how do you get girls to that spot that when they're 16 or 17, they feel comfortable? And I do think, again, it starts in these little moments early on where you help them practice the act of speaking up. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I feel like that is an issue that comes up again and again. And, you know, we sort of saw this with the Me Too movement of, you know, sexual harassment, sexual assault. You you don't really touch on it explicitly in the book. There's not a, a section devoted to, you know, how to deal with unwanted attention or something like that. Do you feel like that's still a necessary conversation or do building some of these other skills, as you just cited, sort of help inform that issue as well? I think it goes hand in hand. I think they're very much related. Um, and I, I don't speak to it specifically in the book, but I do think, you know, that the title of the book is about, you know, what girls need, how to raise bold, courageous, resilient women. And I think boldness, courage, and resilience are the, the sort of the three of the big things that women need and that I needed in my own career um, when I was facing unwanted advancements or, you know, otherwise felt like there was uh, harassment or discrimination that was sort of 
coming at you front on. So I think, you know, that goes hand in hand with the uh, self-defense training and, you know, other stuff as well. And of course, changing the system so that the system is different. And then, you know, speaking to young boys and young men and men about what it looks like through their lens. Um, All these things, um, I think, are part of that puzzle. But, you know, I do think that empowering our girls with the tools that um, make them you know, ready to to be their best, strongest self is a huge part of it. Yeah. And I do feel like Me Too sort of just blew the blew that gate open and sort of started that conversation in a really healthy way that, you know, as a man personally, like I, I wasn't aware, I guess, of just how pervasive, you know, sexual harassment and other things like that were. And it, it makes you twice as aware of just sort of, you know, I, I want to make sure that I'm not saying anything offensive. And if there is anything that may have been misinterpreted, let me go back to it and say, I didn't mean it that way. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, I think that's, that was a really important thing that, you know, sort of came out of that time. Yeah, just so we're all self-aware um, and, and trying to bridge the gap, right? Yeah. I think it's just about like, making sure we're all being our best men and women, boys and girls. Um, and I think it's helpful to also recognize again, um, where there's been there's still a bigger gap remaining for girls um, or also where they may have the advantage, where sort of mm. some of their natural ways of being can really be their their edge. Um, and if we think about it in those ways, it sort of, again, is this, you know, really empowering moment for, for young girls, I think. Yeah, for sure. I, I want to go back for a second, too, to sort of the, the mansplaining and, you know, interrupting issues and all that. And as I was reading your section on that, a recent event just sort of stood out, and that was during the vice presidential debate um, when, you know, there were maybe three or four mm-hmm. times where Kamala Harris specifically just stopped and kind of looked at Mike Pence and said, Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking, and just sort of waited to regain the floor and, and continue with what she was saying. I just wonder sort of if that moment stood out to you as well and sort of what message you think it, think it sends to young girls. Oh, I think it stood out to so many women everywhere. Yeah. Um, it stood out to me as, as somebody who's been in moments like that and, and not had that response, right? I can remember, you know, uh, one, uh, you know, it, it's, it's definitely a, a moment of uh, a bit embarrassing moment for me when I finally made it to the West Wing of the White House, sort of one of the pivotal moments in my career when I was working there. And I had my first meeting with then President Obama. And, uh, and I didn't say a word in the entire meeting. I literally sat there and let the men in the room talk about national security issues, issues that were my areas of expertise and sort of things I'd been working on for years. And um, I didn't realize until I left that I hadn't been interrupted, but I just had let let myself go quiet, go mm-hmm. silent. And if you can't uh, guess from now, from our conversations, not typically how I am, or that's not <laughs> what I think I am. Yeah. And I'm so, you know, I had the good fortune, and the book explains a little bit like how I recovered and sort of bounced back and what that looked like the next time I had my moment with the leader of the free world, um, the, talking about ISIS and, you know, on the way to his uh, waiting presidential limousine, things like that. But that moment sort of came to mind when we were watching the VP's uh, debates, right? And I think so many women also, I, I talked to colleagues and friends and other you know, folks here at my school, saw that as an example of how we all want to be. And, um, and it's sort of, I, I do think, finding role models like that, particularly um, a black woman who can you know, stand her ground in, in such a way that is uh, clear and forthright and unemotional, but powerful, 
Yeah. Right? It's, it's a great example for our girls to see. Um, and they'll all do it in their own ways, right? There's very different personal approaches to sort of holding your ground uh, in a room like that. But uh, yeah, I think it made us all smile. Yeah. I definitely felt the weight of that moment of like, oh, this isn't this isn't just about this one little exchange. This is, mm -hmm. you know, decades worth. And she's speaking for millions of women right now, which it was it was really mm -hmm. powerful. Um, you mentioned race there a little bit, too. And, you know, it, it comes up briefly in the book um, around there was a study that was done for people negotiating buying a car and sort of looking at both the role of gender and race and uh, white men getting the best deal right off the bat going into a car dealership, and then both for women and minorities having to negotiate and still not getting as good of a deal as that sort of initial offer to the white men. I just wonder, you know, it, it's come up in a couple of conversations I've had now, the the intersection, I guess, between gender issues, racial issues, class issues, like how easy, I guess, is it to to separate just the gender piece from this or how much just sort of you know, all the systematic <laughs> oppressive pieces, yeah. you know, entangle with each other here. Well, uh, that it gets, you know, right to the heart of so many of the things I think we wrestle with on a daily basis, particularly when we're trying to shape a, a you know, a community of 575 girls from a variety of backgrounds. And we have a very diverse student population here across race and religion and socioeconomic class. And you're right. I mean, this is where um, your background and personal identity can be both empowering, but also can, you know, reflect many uh, other inequities. Um, and I do think it's hard to unpack them. One interesting thing when I'm talking with our older students, and we, I do a leadership seminar for our seniors, and, you know, one of the things we talk about is what other elements of their personal identity, you know, will impact them as leaders, impact them as women, no matter where they head next, right? For a lot, it can be race, it can be religion, it can be socioeconomic background. You know, for me, and this is a sort of a, a slight diversion, but it's, it, for me, I, I'm Jewish, um, and I spend, I spend a lot of my time uh, working and doing research in the Middle East, uh -huh. um, where being uh, an American, an American woman, and then an American female Jew is actually um, a couple layers of, you know, a roadblock, particularly right. when dealing with uh, Muslim countries and, you know, Muslim government officials, or in my instance, I was, you know, actually interviewing uh, members of Al-Qaeda, right? And so this idea that, you know, a group that was um, formidably opposed to so many basic elements of who I was. And, you know, we haven't talked about empathy here right yet. I know that you've touched on it in other of your, your podcasts. So I want to bring it up because I do think there is a, a role here for our empathetic thinking yeah, that really sure. gets to the heart of how we understand our own position in relation to others and how we can, you know, empathize with the barriers that others may be facing. Um, and I think that um, can be so empowering, particularly when we're thinking about how to help those who have layers of um, systemic inequity that, you know, we can't even imagine ourselves. And that, you know, speaks, of course, to race and, and, um, and class issues um, that I think we see here in America um, every day. Yeah. Well, and the empathy piece is, is definitely, I, I've heard it a lot, as you say, but uh, it's also one that you bring up a lot in the book. And, you know, as you're talking about, like, interviewing members of Al-Qaeda and things like that, obviously you're bringing your empathetic side to it and, and trying to see things from their point of view. But you also share this story of, you know, sort of this is an ex-Al-Qaeda member that, that you were interviewing and sort of him showing empathy back towards you. And I wonder just, like, that feels like the best case scenario 
but I'm sure there's times where you're in a tough situation and you're doing all you can to be empathetic and the person across from you is just not there. Like, I wonder how you handle situations like that. Yeah, I mean, that that was a positive outcome to the story. And um, the, you can, the the details are in the book for those. Uh, you'll get to that chapter. It's, uh, But you're right. I mean, this is where we have to put our trust in others. And it does require, you know, it's the downside of being vulnerable. It, of course, is much more difficult when uh, there's more systemic barriers than not. Yeah. And and this is where I think there's two two thoughts that come to mind in terms of how we prepare our girls and and our colleagues even or sort of young women to face these moments. One is that uh, yes, to your point, the power that comes with being vulnerable often comes when the person you are with or being vulnerable with accepts the vulnerability and returns it in kind. Right. Yep. So that's you know the starting point, and yet it on its face sets you up um, for success. Right. So and it does so when you have a team beside you that will support you. Yeah. Right. And this is where I think, you know, building particularly for our you know minority colleagues and friends or for young women who will be facing sort of greater barriers to entry wherever they head next, building a team around them so that when, to your point, it doesn't work out. Um, they have something to fall back on, right? It's still the safe environment that, again, you know, we think we're giving our girls at school, but it's a version of that later on in life. And, you know, when I, I think back to that story about the young woman who reported the uh, incident of sexual harassment to, you know, the white older male president of the, the school, they did so knowing that they had the support of their parents. They did so knowing they had the support of teachers, right? Yeah. They hadn't turned to them yet. But they were confident that they had a quote-unquote team around them. And I do think that's something that, you know, we can build for all our girls. Yeah, that's huge. You know, I, I want to end it. So we, we've been talking about huge issues and sort of big mm-hmm, structural right. issues. But again, what I loved about the book was just sort of these little takeaways and that realizing that especially if you start young, there are just little things that you can do. And even, I mean, you cite like, playing a board game that helps build healthy competitiveness or, you know, just reading a fictional book, a narrative fiction, it can help build empathy, just, you know, sort of things that we should be doing as parents anyways. But like, there's a there's a reason for them and that these skills will come back later in life if you build the foundation early. That That was one of the big takeaways that I took was just the importance of sort of developing those skills and activities early on. Yeah, and I, I do think it's that, you know, small things have a big impact lesson, right? And so, you know, I it feels so unwieldy to think about how we build resilience and courage and boldness in our girls. But when you break it down into not just how do we help them advocate for themselves or be more adaptable or be more empathetic, but into actually things you can do every day in a little way, right? Again, reading fiction, you know, playing certain games, you know, talking in certain about certain things in your own day when you're at home around the dinner table, things like that have a lasting impact. And so it's not about being perfect parents or even being, you know, doing massive things differently, but every once in a while, um, thinking about sort of the use of tricks and, and tools we can give them. That's what I think is, is incredibly impactful. All right. Marissa Porges is there. Go check out Marissa's book, What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. It's on bookstore shelves now, or you can read it digitally on all your digital e-reading devices. You know what I'm talking about. Those things. Those computer things. And I mentioned it on Monday's show as well, but I'll give it a plug here. I just launched a new newsletter 
The second issue will go out this Sunday, and it's going to recap this week's shows and also add additional links, additional information, things, you know, to help enhance the show experience. So if you enjoy Quarantine Creatives, or if you find that you just don't have time to listen to every episode, but you'd love a summary of sort of what's interesting in each one, go check out the newsletter. It's for you. Probably the easiest way to sign up is to just go to my homepage, which is heathrasella.com. There's a link right on the homepage there to enter your email, and you'll get the newsletter right in your inbox every Sunday morning. So please sign up for that. And if you enjoy the show and if you enjoy the newsletter, the newsletter has an option for paid supporter. You certainly don't have to do that. I make everything available for free. But again, if you're enjoying the content, please feel free to subscribe through the newsletter. It's a great way to help support the mission here. All right, I have new shows every Monday and Thursday. Hopefully by Monday, everything will be defined. Maybe by the time you're hearing this, things will be defined. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Drop me a line. Have a great weekend, everyone. Stay safe. <laughs>